Our last episode was a greatest hits episode from Taylor Holiday's first visit to the BK show. And today we're going to do a greatest hits episode of his second visit to the BK show. So enjoy this second episode with Taylor Holiday. Hey, welcome to the BK show podcast. This is episode number 37. And today I am joined by previous guest, Taylor holiday. Taylor was on episode number seven, uh, where he talked about everything from minor league baseball, power balance, Kalo rings, told a bunch of wild stories. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't listened to that episode, pause this one right now, go back and download episode seven. You can listen to it later. Uh, you will not regret listening to that episode. Uh, Taylor is the managing partner of common thread collective, which is an agency that exists to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Uh, he also is a owner of a four by 400, a modern day holding company, building a collection of digitally native brands. Uh, he also owns part of your which is an exclusive membership community for founders, operators, and marketers growing their online business. We talk about all of that stuff today. If you want to hear his, his backstory, go listen to episode number seven. Uh, today we're going to talk about how does four by 400 go acquire brands? What does that look like for the founder who's being acquired? Uh, they talk about selling one of those brands. What does that look like? What's, what's the selling process look like? And what does that look like for the founder that came along for the ride? We also talk a little bit about youradmission.co. And we talk about being a leader. We talk about uh, Taylor's mission to help his employees' dreams come true as well. This episode is absolute fire. Uh, we didn't even get to some of the stuff that uh, Taylor and I are geeking out about nowadays, which is NFTs and sports cards and dibs. Um, so we're going to have Taylor back again, I think. Uh, but this episode's awesome. If, if you want to get to know Taylor, if you want to know what his businesses are, all about. If you want to know what being a good leader looks like, uh, listen to this episode. I think you're going to find it amazing. Also in this episode, Taylor has encouraged me to share more. Uh, for those of you on my email list, you already know I'm not a very good at uh, actually sending you emails. So uh, I'm going to start doing that. So if you guys want to hop on my email list, it's at benconnectnerf.com. It's at thebkshow.com. It's in the show notes as well. Hop on that email list. I'm going to start sharing more of what I'm doing um, and, and what I'm into. I'm also going to do that on Twitter. So make sure you give me a follow over there at Ben Kenegendorf. And uh, uh, if you listen to last week's episode, John and I discussed possibly starting a Patreon where we really go deep behind our businesses. Uh, if you want to hear that, uh, go sign up, dropshippodcast.com. We're going to charge five bucks per episode, and we are going to go deep into things that we don't normally share publicly uh, that we can share a little bit more in depth. And it uh, sounds like we might build a business together and just share all of that, uh, which would be awesome. So if you guys want to hear more from me, sign up for my email uh, newsletter. Go follow me on Twitter, and if you want to hear more from John and I, head to dropshippodcast.com. But without further ado, let's head into today's episode with Taylor Holiday. Taylor Holiday, welcome back to the show, buddy. What up, BK? Pleasure to be back with you. Uh, your episode, so I, I checked, uh, was the fifth most listened to episode so far on the show. Uh, and I listened to it again last night uh and i think it should be the number one most listened to. I, I, i'm rivaling you with uh cave episode number one is one of my favorites if not my favorite and i think yours is really cl- like it's a really good show so this for all of you listening this is how smart ben is is he knows how to provoke me he knows he led with that bullet point when he sent it to me is hey man your episode was great it's in fifth place <laughs> so he knew that that was the best way to antagonize me to try and bring it today because I got to get to number one, BK. So we're uh, you, you've tapped into my competitive side, but uh, we'll see what we can do to to, to get you some uh, good clickbait quotes or something to pull people in. Well, I've done a poor job. We were talking before the call. I've done a really poor job of marketing this show. I put it out on my own feed and I, and I put it out in a few groups and I've asked my guests to share it, but 
the best show I've had was my friend Abdul. He has a giant email list from all of his, you know, potential leads to his courses. And that did extremely well in the first week. Not much stuck around after that. But other than that, I haven't ran ads. I, I don't send emails. I've got an email list with like, I don't know, like 14 people on it. Uh, it's really hard to get people on your email list. Uh, yeah, go to the bkshow.com and sign up for my email list. I won't email you. And then uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know how to get more eyes. I think this show is fantastic. I, again, I think your episode's incredible, man. You were uh, a former minor league baseball player with the New York Yankees. You were part of Power Balance and Kalo Rings, where you worked with elite athletes such as Shaq, Derrick Rose, many more. I think you talked about Kim Kardashian. You yeah. talked about puking in a rod's uh playground in his house like that's incredible the show was incredible uh you tell a good story and man i I need to do better maybe you can give me some advice on how to market i'll tell you what it is it's simple because like and you're a self-described lurker right like and so i think this is a great step this is a first step for you of like finding your voice and you're doing it through asking other people questions which is great but there's still an underestimation of yourself and how much people should hear from you right like so i i think like twitter's a perfect example where Twitter, the key is, is like, you just got to post a thousand things a day for a really long time. And and what that requires actually is that you've got to be willing to say some stupid shit along the way. <laughs> and like, that's one of the biggest things that I've found is that if you are free and unafraid of sort of like saying the wrong thing, it actually is really powerful because then you'll be willing to say more, which is part of the key to the platform. So part of it is for you is you're, you and Dave both, you're actually too thoughtful and too kind and um, too considerate of your words and you're quick to listen and slow to speak, which is a great attribute as a human being, but it actually makes distribution on Twitter kind of hard sometimes. So I think it's a part of it is, man, you just trusting that you've got something good to share and putting it out way more often. Yeah, I think Twitter's interesting, right? So I don't know if we brought this up on the show last time. I know I asked you during our poker group. Somebody started an account called like Slow Clap for DTC Success, uh, where he calls out the fact that a lot of the DTC community on Twitter is a bunch of people patting each other on the back. And to be fair, they should. We're all working our faces off to do cool stuff in this world, and we yep. we go out and share it, which makes us all feel vulnerable. And if you don't have like a bunch of other people patting you on the back, number one, you don't get the distribution, so you don't get the followers in the first place. And then number two, uh, you're probably not going to share anymore because you didn't get any likes or or like any feedback whatsoever. And so uh, it's hard. It, it it it's a lot like like look this show. If I went back and looked at my first few podcast episodes, it's my mom, um, it's my wife, it's a few of her friends, it's a bunch of random people listening. And then you know slowly you start hitting that exponential curve. But if you don't push through those early oh. moments of no one caring. Uh, you're never going to make it. And those early moments suck, man. And so yeah, like, they do. They you're right. I overthink hard. it. I don't know what to share. I, I do know what to share, but I feel like it's so rudimentary that I never want to share it. And then when I do share it, people go, holy shit. And I'm like, what do you mean? Right. Holy shit. That's so simple. Right. Um, yeah. That's another, that's a great point. It's another thing. It's hard to contextualize where you were from a knowledge standpoint against your present state. Cause, cause we're always looking out at experts and sometimes that, that makes us forget what it's like to be entering in. And, and I learn this all the time. One of the things I get called out on a lot fair is like, my language is not inclusive. And what I mean by that is I use too many acronyms. I talk in language that's not helpful to people. And every time I put out a YouTube video or anything like that, and I see that in the comments, it's a great reminder to myself of like, oh, no, no, in order to invite people into this conversation, it needs to be accessible. And so part of that is just, again, this constant reminder of what it's like to be at the start and to, to help people from there and to realize that your value is part of the fact that you're just further down the path and we're all on the path in some capacity. And so somebody a day behind you can learn from you and people in front of you as well too, because we, they're not like a single path. They're all sort of divergent coming in from different directions. Right. So um, yeah, just getting to that belief point is hard though. I, I, I recognize that. 
it's hard to remember where you were. So like I, I was on my friend uh, Tom. He was on this show like episode 10-ish. He invited me to come talk to his students. And he had hundreds, hundreds of students on the call. And they were all hanging on every word of mine as I'm telling like the early version of my story of like, you know, hopping off my forklift to drive to the front of the building and walk outside and call customers back. And, and some of the looking back, like really tiny headaches, but they were huge deals back then. And just seeing their eyes across the zoom screen and the things that were popping up in the chat, it really made me reflect of like how hard those early moments were and, and, and just, you know, trying to meet people where they were at when they were at the beginning of the journey and, and seeing some of the beliefs they have that are really hard to get over. The thing, so Joe, I, there was an episode where Jonah Peretti, who's the founder of BuzzFeed, I think he, I think it was on Guy Raz. I, I don't know exactly where it was, but he's talking about building BuzzFeed. And the thing he says is that the thing they discovered was um, the key was to create content that other people could immediately identify into. So it is an example with BuzzFeed. One of the things that they always did would be like headlines that read something like something and only a kid who grew up in the nineties would understand. Right. And so what that does is the second, if I'm somebody who grew up in the nineties, I go, oh, that's me. And I self-select into the content. What you're describing and why it's so powerful is because if you are speaking to someone about where they presently are versus where you presently are, it's going to be more impactful. So if someone's sitting there and they're in that place where they've got a full-time job and they're stepping outside to make the calls, when you tell that story, now they can see themselves in your story. If you just talk about all the things that you're doing now, they can't, they don't get it. They can't see themselves in that. And it's much more powerful when you can give someone identity to find their identity in your story. That's when you'll build a connection. And I think like I, that, that stuck with me forever hearing Jonah Purdy talk about that. And I think what you're describing is sort of the same thing. Yeah. I had a mentor tell me I need to put out what I know into a course uh, and teach everything I know and call it from forklift to fuck you money. And that was his point was like, go back and talk. There, there's, a thousand, couple thousand Ben's across the country driving a forklift right now that know they never applied themselves and they're just dying inside. Um, right. And they they need you. Uh, yeah, one of these days, I, I hope to come out of my shell and be that that voice for them. You know. Yeah, and well, this is a great step. I think like it's like we're working with Dave right now. Like Dave coming on your podcast, doing his first podcast, getting his tweets out there. Like find the space where you're comfortable and expand from there. So I, I think you're doing it, man. Yeah, I think it, it it is the the podcast realm. Uh, I think I could talk all day. Uh, maybe I don't talk so super eloquently, but I have something to say. As as uh, uh, Jim Rome would say, I have a take and I don't suck. You know, like yeah, I, I just I want to get go. behind a mic. I, I don't want to type out words and write blog posts. I don't want to get behind a video camera. I I enjoy being behind the mic and just having conversations. That's a great place to start, man. And you're good at it. Well, last podcast we got into like leading up to where we are and we didn't really dive into your current businesses at all. And so I wanted to dive into some of that, uh, you know, preview for the rest of the show. I want to talk about, uh, dibs a little deeper. I want to talk about, uh, NFTs, uh, like a lot of bit. I want to hear your take on this cause I've seen you passionately rant about them over the last couple of weeks. And so, uh, I think you are maybe attempting to be the leading voice on NFTs, which I think is fantastic. And so like, I want to, I want to propel you with my, uh, my huge audience into the, into the stratosphere. Great. I'm in. I, I, <laughs> it's funny. It is true. It's like we, we went on this like journey through the, my past and never made it to the present. And so uh, I think that's good. Cause, cause it's funny. I'm a futurist. Like I, I prefer to talk about the things that have not yet happened versus the things that have. And so um, I would love, love to do that. Yeah. Well, your story was awesome, but it, it got us right to the point of talking about, uh, you know, common thread co your admission and four by 400. If I could, I, I want to ask you some questions about four by 400, like right out of the gates. Right. So we discussed a little bit about slick products, uh, 31 bits, which are some of the companies. So 
four by 400 is like a holding company of all of the direct to consumer brands that you guys have, but you go out and acquire more brands. Right. And so I think since right. last time we talked, I think I don't, I'm not even sure if you had bamboo earth at that point. Um, but you definitely acquired genuine collars, which is now genuine K nine and you acquired modern fuel. And like, number one, I want to, I want to ask you a million questions. Like how does that, what does that structure even look like? As far as I know, you own it, but you're not really involved there. So <clears throat> you're talking about for me personally. Yeah. Um, so the parent company that all of our entities sit under is an entity called Dream Labs. Okay. So Dream Labs is the mothership, if you will, uh, uh, over all of our entities. And so Dream Labs owns um, 99% of CTC. It owns 90% of 4x400. It owns, um, I think, 33% of Kinship. It owns, you know, so we have a, uh, and then we have a company called Tell Me Your Dreams. We have an investment in a company called Amp. We have, uh, you know, position across all these various entities that all sort of ladder into Dream Labs, the parent company. Um, so I have a position. I'm a, a third owner of Dream Labs, one of the, the three partners. And then there's a bunch of minority partners as well in that entity. And so that's how it sort of distributes across the whole ecosystem. So uh, I, maybe I'm ignorant here. I remember, like, so I listen to, you know, Gary, I think uh, probably a lot of listeners enjoy some Gary. He's got Vayner Media on top, right? And he's got Vayner X, he's got Vayner Sports. And I was trying to understand, like, what is the point of having that many entities? Is it simply like diversification? And so, like, you know, you and, and, and Josh, I'm assuming, um, at the top in Dream Labs and probably some others, right? And then you guys own a piece of this and you're able to give some to employees or, or incentivize people working for you. Or is it simply like, is it is it a tax thing? Is it a yeah. like help me understand the whole ownership thing as I'm starting to launch like three more businesses right now with different partners? I'm trying to figure this out myself. Yeah, it's a great question. So so the primary thing is liability, right? So when you separate out the money between four by four hundred and let's say CTC, uh, the reality is is that if they if we let's say we put those all into one entity, if four by four hundred became insolvent or had to go bankrupt, then they would come for the assets of CTC, right? So by keeping them all as separate entities, you allow the liability to ma maintain within the individual structure. So that's that's one thing, right? Uh, the next thing is that I believe that you want to be able to incentivize the owners of the company on the company that they're working on, right? So we want to be able to incentivize CTC employees with CTC equity and four by four hundred employees with four by four hundred equity without having to then distribute equity across everything that we're doing, right? So it allows us to sort of uh, think about um, the owners of each entity as being the ones working on those individual entities and make decisions accordingly. Um, and then there are some some tax structure, structural benefits that's like, as an example, in this past year, because of the way we're growing the business, 4 by 400 posted a tax loss, CTC posted a task gain, our actual tax liability was basically zeroed out um, across both of those in that entity. Now, someday, hopefully, they're all making money and it doesn't defer your tax liability in some way. But there are there are benefits in lots of different directions. But that said, it's a pain in the ass. And, and there's no doubt about the complexity of the system in different ways and the, really, the ways you have to be really careful about um, the individual incentives of the individual owners versus the collective incentives and ensuring that you're behaving in a way that's consistent inside of each entity with the owners of each entity um, and makes moving money around more complicated. So there, there's pros and cons um, in, in both directions. Yeah. So I assume, you know, your, your brands themselves have their own entity, which flow into a parent company, which owns all of those entities, which flow into a parent company, which owns right. that entity, right? Um, it makes exactly. total sense that way. I'm, I'm trying to think through it in my head. How does that not like disincentivize 
so let's say I'm just making these up. Like, let's say you own more of a share of a, you know, a private label brand. That's part of a, you know, another brand, right? Like what incentivizes you to work equally on all of them when you don't own an equal share on all of them? Yeah. So that's, it's a great question. And so there's no, but the, anytime that would happen, it would create a conflict of interest. So like, as an example, inside of four by 400, this is the place where like, so four by 400, there are five sub subsidiaries of four by 400, right? Like brands that we own somewhere between 60 to 80% of. And then there's an individual owner, usually the, the, the brand owner that we acquired the business from that maintains a position, but they don't have a position in 4x400. They just have a position in the individual brand. And so there's nobody that has a position, an equity position um, in the individual brand that's an employee of 4x400, right? So in that sense, we want to keep people focused because the second we do that, and, and we actually did this early on, so I, I take that back. There's one person that's a brand owner of Slick and an equity holder in 4x400. And it does create a real tension and conflict because his highest potential upside is on the individual entity versus the collective entity in some argument, right? Like, so we've, we've learned from that and realized that we have to be really clear in thinking through how does this incentive structure alter their behavior within the system and it's something you got to think about all the time. And the second you notice a conflict, you've got to try and go back to the table and say, hey, we think this is going to actually cause us to not behave in a collective fashion. Could we redesign it in some way? And so we're always trying to think through that um, and trying to figure out how we get everybody pulling on the same end of the rope um, so that you don't create that conflict because it's real. If, if you have varying stakes in different things, um, it becomes a challenge to think about the right resource allocation. Well, I'm designing that right now. So I might have to buy an hour of your time and have you do it, man. I, I would love to chat through. We've learned, we've made a lot of mistakes in this process and, and learned a lot of things along the way about how we would, if we could design it perfectly from the start, how we would do it uh, versus how we're doing it now and how we're going to continue to try and improve it in the future. Well, I'm all about buying time to move past mistakes, right? Uh, there's a, an SEO guy I look up to. Um, I paid uh, a few hundred dollars for 15 minutes of his time last week, but he turned that few hundred dollars into $11,000, like just right. buying yeah. that 15 minutes. And so um, huge fan of that. So uh, everyone buy my shit. Uh, I'll help you <laughs> fix some stuff. Uh, all right. So I, I want to talk about like you acquired some businesses since, since we last spoke. And I think the way you acquire businesses is unique. Um, I don't know how deep you can go into this, but like you acquired genuine callers, you, you acquired modern fuel, and then you also sold one too. So like, can you talk through how you guys go about acquiring those businesses? Yeah, absolutely. So the general premise is we're looking for early, early stage businesses. So usually sub a million dollars in revenue, um, very little to no profit, um, you're dealing with a founder and we've all probably, a lot of people have probably been in this phase where you're making very little money. Um, your paycheck is sort of inconsistent. There's probably some debt on the business that's causing high stress. Um, you've got a great product, but you're doing it a lot yourself. Um, and you're in a position of like sort of exhaustion in some ways. You've been doing it for a while. That's, that's a, that's an painted with a very broad brush, the state of the entrepreneurs that we primarily engage with. Um, and so for us, the value proposition we're bringing to the table is, hey, we're going to acquire some the majority position in this business, somewhere between 60 to 80%. You're going to maintain some of the upside. Upside, You're going to get a great salary. You're going to get healthcare. All the strain of is my paycheck company is going to be taken away. And we're going to invest a lot of money in making this brand better. And very quickly, your 20% with us, along with the security of the revenue that you're making, is going to be worth more than the 100% by yourself. 
Um, and now we have a pretty good track record of being able to show them what that looks like and why our ecosystem enables that to happen. And so it allows us to acquire the business with minimal cash outlay. Usually there's a small, small a bit of cash. I'm talking like somewhere between zero and $20,000 in some cases. Um, um, there have been a couple that are slightly larger than that. And then um, they have a better lifestyle off the back of it. They now have an amazing team of people working on their brand. A lot of that uh, sort of ongoing anxiety of uh, is, is taken from them. And their asset value, the actual equity value is actually greater very quickly. Um, and so in that sense, we can show them that deal, that opportunity where they're getting both security and upside. So we're raising their floor also while we believe we're raising their ceiling. Um, and if they trust us to do that, then it's a great deal that makes sense. And for some people it is and some people it isn't. So without, you know, you don't have to give me details on any one of these businesses, but walk me through a deal of like, I know that you don't put a lot of cash down, right? So number yep. one, that takes some convincing to tell that guy, Hey, I want to buy your business, but I'm not going to give you anything. Um, yeah. and then you're going to give them a percentage. So number one, I'd like to know how you convince them of that, how that earnout works and how like you make them feel secure. I'm assuming you put them on some sort of salary, right? Yeah, exactly. And so usually the other thing that we do is, is, um, we give them a, a percentage of the top line revenue as well. So usually the deal is a salary plus 1%, zero, half a percent to one and a half percent of the GMV right off the top, right? So that, so, so, and now we can show them three case studies of founders who went from this lifestyle I'm describing where you're taking money from the business, your business is in debt, you're in constant stress, your business isn't growing, you're exhausted to making six figures in a salary with healthcare benefits and 401k and your asset value is way, way, way higher. And that's a really compelling offer to somebody in that state. And so for us to come in and say, look, this isn't about the cash right now. We're going to give you a, a, an initial, you know, like I said, somewhere in that zero to $20,000 cash upfront. And in exchange, you're going to get these things. Like I mentioned, the salary, the, the ongoing royalty on the GMV, and we're going to invest and grow this business. And you're going to maintain that upside when we create a liquidity event. Um, it's really compelling. Um, and I think it's a, there's for a lot of people, it's a really smart move for them to consider uh, given the ecosystem, we can surround them and invest in their business from the advertising they immediately get access to, to the supply chain support, to every, from the customer service that immediately gets taken off their plate, the capitalization, like all of it. Um, in a way that, again, that 20% becomes worth more than the 100% very, very quickly. Well, I have so many questions. All right. So next question immediately in my brain would be, um, are you telling them upfront, we want to sell this in the future? Like we want to have a liquidity event. So so this is part of the question. Like, like So right now, the goal is not actually to create a liquidity event in the individual entity. It's to aggregate the profit into four by 400. And this is something where we live in this tension, right? Which is, the point of a holding company is that the multiple on the aggregated profit is going to be greater than the sum of the multiples on the individual entities. Okay. So that's a weird statement, but think about it like this. Entity A has a million dollars in profit. It's going to get a three to one on that money. Okay. Um, and there's two of them. So two individual entities, each of them get three to one on their money. Um, that's $6 million, right? $2 million in aggregated profit might get three and a half to one on the money because the higher the profit number, usually the higher the multiple. So the aggregate value for us of the profit in four by 400 is going to be greater than the individual. So we actually aren't normally trying to sell the individual entities. The only time we're going to sell the individual entities is when it's time to divest ourselves from the asset because their resource drain relative to their ability to produce profit for the whole thing is disproportionate in our minds. 
So are you moving to a point where you hope to sell all of four by 400? Yes, that is the, that's the that's the highest potential end game. So to, when you come to you know Modern Fuel or Genuine Collar Canine, whatever you're calling it, uh, are you telling them that? Are you saying like, here is where I think we can go? Yeah, and I think what we're telling them is we're showing them everything that's happened. And the reality is like, we don't know the, the specific outcome for each individual brand, whether it's going to be, hey, this turns into a profit machine for 4x400, or this is an asset like FC Goods, which I think we're going to get to talk to talk about in a second, that we actually did divest and create a liquidity event for. Um, and so we, we're explaining, this is the system. These are each of the assets. With what specifically happens with yours is going to be relative to our ability to turn it into a cash machine or not. Um, and along the way, you're going to make money. And then on the individual entity, you're going to make money. And then one of the things, if like in the example, like right now, Bamboo Earth is an example, is a cash machine for us, right? So it's not an asset that we want to sell. So there's a couple of things we can do. One, we can go to the founder and make an offer to buy out their position um, in the entity. We can um, negotiate uh, a purchase of their equity for four by 400 equity. So there's lots of ways in which we can create value off of that percentage for that person. Um, and because they're in working with us every day, we have an incentive to make it mutually beneficial. And the reality is because they're making 1% of the GMV, they're making a grip of money. And so they're, they're, they're in a great position. Um, so we try and be transparent about the fact that we don't know the exact right end outcome for your business. We explain our model and the, what the potential outcomes might be, uh, and then go from there. Yeah. And then the final question I would have had as the founder, I would say, what do you what do you want from me, right? If you came and you're trying to buy this pets brand behind me, and you're like, we want to keep you on at twenty percent, we're going to give you one percent off the top, give you a salary, all that sounds great. What do you need me to do daily? So that's a great that's a great question. And what we have found is that the founders that we've acquired, um, they all have a little bit different skill set. Like if I line them all up and explain like who Brian is and who Amber is, you know, like I, you would have a different skill set. But the commonality is two things. I think one is they are product people. Like, and they, what we don't do at 4x400 well is product development. Like we don't have an engine for deciding what the new skincare product should be. And like, that's what Amber is brilliant at. That's what she built was incredible skincare. Like in Modern Fuel, like, um, like the man's an engineer. That's what he does, right? Like that's his primary skill. He designed this incredible product. And so we want to set them free to do that. And then the second thing is to be the voice of the brand in the community in some way. So that's helping us to ensure the customer service messaging, um, the, to ensure that the, the social content, the website is correctly communicating the value proposition. And so they have a lot of participation in the brand voice and product development as the ideal scenario for us. Now, in some cases, they represent, they're great operationally and they help on supply chain. Like in Brian's case, he's like really great in, in helping think through that capacity. So they all have different skill sets, but in an ideal world, they bring product development to the table as a thing that we don't do well internally. So a personal question, do you, uh, do you offer finder's fee to people who find you business? Because as you're talking, I'm like, I know the absolute perfect business for you. And, and this person's actually looking to do everything you described. Yeah, absolutely. We we would love to work something out. We we love to meet new founders, and if the deal works out, we're happy to to pay people and compensate them for it. Well, I do it just because I like it, but uh, I'm also happy to take some. Come cash on, off you're, you, so. you're a shrewd negotiator. Don't <laughs> fool anybody, Ben. Uh, I just I have a lot of questions. I like to pick a lot of holes. Uh, all right, so you 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 briefly touched on it. FC Goods, yeah, um, which. When I met you, uh, I thought that was the coolest business I'd ever heard of. Uh, you you gifted me a hat before we were done, which is also a pretty cool hat. You buy all of the old baseball gloves, or you 
previously did all of the old baseball gloves in the country and turn them into wallets and uh, other things too, right? Like, uh, did you make uh, belts and things out of that? Yep, belts. We have dop kits, hats, um, anything that you can make out of leather in theory could be done with it. Um, and so on on your 4x400 podcast, uh, which is hosted by your head of 4x400, it's called e-commerce playbook podcast if you guys are running a dtc brand definitely go check that out they literally give everything away um i actually want to ask why you do that before we're done here but like on there you did an episode uh with andrew ferris and with your hype man aaron orndorff uh where you guys kind of talked about this and and so before the call you were like you know what you do really do good on a podcast ben you ask the questions that nobody wants to ask and so on that show on my walk i was like why is nobody asking this question uh, uh even your hype man was kind of hinting at some things i think uh and so i really if you don't mind can you break that down and then definitely like i'm happy to put in the show notes people to go listen to the rest of that episode but i'd love to know how in the beginning what, what did you give the founder of fc goods and how did that work out and then obviously you guys had a crazy end event there so yeah so this is this is a perfect example right like so john brong who is the founder he was a maker like this business, what it was when we bought it was a guy buying gloves off of eBay. And whenever he got around to it, making wallets and releasing them in his spare time while working full time, right? Like this was not a business. This was a hobby. Um, and so we saw it as a chance to turn it into a business um, on the basis of what he had established. Cause every, he built a little following where every time he would release the wallets, he would sell out. And John Braun is an amazing designer. Like he's now the, like he leads the MLB design collection at stance. Like he was a baseball fan, a brilliant maker, a designer, an awesome dude, right? But he wasn't building a business. That's not what he was doing. So for us to come in and go, hey, man, what you've done is really, really cool. Let us see where we could take it um, because he was exhausted. He was about to shut it down. Like he just didn't have time anymore to do it. And so we're like, I think the deal was $5,000 for 80% of the business. That was the deal. And he was like, cool, five grand. And you guys are going to try and turn this into a big company that my 20% might be worth something. Um, sounds good to me. And we got to write him a really big check eight, eight weeks ago. And he turned around and tried to hand it right back to us and said, like, I'd rather you guys keep turning my money into more money. Would you, t would you, can I invest this back with you? Wow. <laughs> so like that's, that to me is a, now he's an example where he wasn't actually trying to build a business. So it's a little different for sure. For him, it was total passive participation in a thing that he wasn't going to have otherwise. Right. And wasn't really making him a bunch of money, so so it was very unique in that way. But um, that's that's what the first deal was. Yeah, but you're a, clearly a baseball guy, so I'm assuming maybe you stumbled on this brand. How did you how did you find FC Goods in the first place? It was it was a gift for my 30th birthday. So this wallet, Brian Garofalo, who's the C, CMO of Igloo, he and I have been friends a long time. My 30th birthday party, I had a wiffle ball. We had we played a wiffle ball game, um, and he brought me an FC Goods wallet, and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. BG is just one of those guys that he always knows the coolest, like sort of underground crafty, like cool hip things. Um, and he, he brought it to me and he's like, Hey, check this out. And I just followed them forever. Every time he did a drop, I would check it out. I would buy them as gifts for people. Cause I just thought it was this cool little indie maker brand, you know? And then he, he actually came back to me and said like a couple of years later and was like, Hey, John's tired. Would you guys want to buy this? Um, and that's how it happened. It was just like, huh. I got it. I got it as a gift, stayed in touch and, then eventually had a chance to buy it. Is Brian the guy who rocks the office background? He used to play poker with us back in the day. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah. All right, yeah, he's an yeah. interesting character. You might have to make an intro. Yeah, you might have to make an intro. He seems like a cool guy. You should you should talk to him if you want to follow somebody who's a truly a marketer in the like capital M sense of the word. He's great at it. Wow. Uh, all right. So FC, you bought it for five k. You gave the guy twenty percent. 
I would yep. assume immediately you took logistics off the table. You took everything off the table. What, what are you asking the owner of FC Goods to do? He did nothing. So John did nothing. The, so that that's a unique case in that he didn't become an employee of ours. He's the only person. In the beginning, he helped us with some brand stuff. Um, so he did some design work for us early on that we just compensated him for hourly, I think. Or he might have been on an early retainer. I don't remember the exact um, terms. But John had a full-time job. He wasn't looking for for employment. So in that case, it was different for us in that he wasn't an employee of the entity we acquired. He was already, I think at that time he might've been working at Ruka or somewhere else, but he wasn't looking for a full-time job. So that was, that was a very different circumstance than the others that we, than Andy or Brian or Amber or anybody else. And, you know, not to, to bury the lead or, or give away your podcast, but you sold it and, and in a short period yeah. of time for a Afload load of money. Well, uh, so so we, we, I mean, I, I, I think I actually like the story because I don't think it's an F ton of money. I, I actually think it, what it represents is like a good outcome in e-com that isn't talked about enough, right? So we sold the business about two and a half years later for $1.2 million. And um, against the $5,000 investment, that's really awesome. Um, but that's not a unicorn, right? That's not a $100 million. You're not going to read about us in Forbes because of that, right? Like, But what it is, is like, a really great multiple on your money, <laughs> which is what you're trying to do, right? Is to find things that you can turn around and make a good return on. And it's also a signal that we didn't think it had a lot more upside with us as the owners, right? And so that was why we divested was because the supply chain was so hard, man. Like trying to continually source and find gloves was exhausting. And it became this burden and we had tried product development, but we couldn't get anything to crack. The LTV was kind of crummy. like, um, And so for us, it was just time to say like, Hey, the amount of resources it's taking to produce this amount of money probably could be reallocated better somewhere else. So we're really proud of the outcome and we think it's a great story. And it's one I want people to hear because I want them to know that you don't have to just try and build businesses to $100 million. Like there's lots of other ways to do this um, that can be really productive for you. And so, yeah, like you can imagine, we got to write um, write uh, John a really cool check out of that. That was a great deal for him in two and a half years. There's not a place he could have gotten a better return on that, right? So that I'm proud of. Um, and I think it's a it's an, it's an untold narrative of e-com that I think sh- we, we would all do better to hear more. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the guy got a, the huge check. Sounds like he wanted to reinvest it to, to make it grow more. Did you allow that to happen? Did you let him invest in something? We, did, uh, we didn't have anything at the time, but we're definitely definitely keeping it keeping him in mind on it for sure. But I got to imagine, I mean, 1.2, 20%, what was that? 200 and like a quarter million dollars? Like it, there's no way he could have imagined that happening like at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think any of it, like, I think we all hope, right? Like you, you start a business and you're hopeful, you sell it hopefully with the dream of that. So I, I don't think it was like completely out of his realm of possibility. And he was following along, like he knew how much revenue we were doing, we would keep in touch. And I think if anything, he was like, sort of sad that we pulled out at this point that we did, because for him, it was sort of like his really big upside opportunity, right? Like, um, and, and so if anything, he wanted us to keep going. Um, it's not to say that he wasn't appreciative or excited about the opportunity, but you don't have many places with that sort of asymmetric potential return relative to your risk, right? So in those cases, like you don't, it'd be like if I came to you right now, BK, and was like, hey, would you take 200,000 for your money in dibs? Like you would probably be like, no way. Like, you, I mean, I don't know. You're a pretty, pretty rational guy. You might actually do it, but I would, there's no way I'd do it, right? No, so no chance. I th- right? So, so, and we're sitting here with 25,000 or so invested in each. Like it, it's sort of that. And I think, I think in that sense, he was stoked, obviously, and appreciative and grateful and all those things, but also, was loving the ride and wanted to see where else the brand could go. Cause I think the brand does have more potential for sure. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, cause I know there's people listening who are like, ah, oh, cool. You bought a business for $5,000. This guy was a hobby. 
there has to be huge headaches in you acquiring enough baseball gloves around the country. Can you just give, I don't know, four or five big levers you pulled? Like, kudos, number one, kudos to you. I would imagine it's even hard. Like, I, you know, I did something similar, right? I, I came into a business. We went 1 million to 11 million in two years. I got, you know, a nice big payday on my way out. Those guys, I assume, are two, three, four, five times that now. Um, I don't like talking about it either. It feels like, honestly, it's not something I want to share. I would assume there's hard parts for you of like, yeah, cool, but what's next? Um, but like, w- tell me, help me understand, like, what helped you grow that fast? The thing that, like, what, what we know how to do is we know how to drive demand for things, right? Like, that's our core competency is we can, and primarily, like, specifically, like, we know how to run Facebook ads, right? And we... The thing about 4x400 is that the whole premise is like, we're when I say we know how to run Facebook ads, what I mean is like we're clear-headed about what succeeding on Facebook means. So what that what I mean by that is like, I know that a 50th percentile outcome is two to one on Facebook. It's not 10 to one. It's not four to one. It's not five to one. It's two to one. So that means that I want to make bets to find businesses that if I give away 50% of my revenue, I still make money. Right. And so we're clear about this. And so we understand the operational mechanics and the unit economics of the kinds of businesses that you can do that with. And so we're good at, we're really good at getting 50th percentile outcomes, which doesn't actually mean that we're like some uniquely awesome group of people. Right. It just means that we understand the levers. And so, in that sense, like the beautiful thing about FC Goods is that it's got a lot of gross margin, it's got a high AOV, and it's about 70 points landed. Right. Uh, And so, in that sense, like we, we can. We knew two to one is about an average outcome, and we, in holiday, in Father's Day, and Christmas, you can do better than that. It's a great gifting product, and so most of the business is built around those two moments. And we're able to, to create ads. We know how to build good websites and make sure they convert well and produce content and all those pieces along the way. But um, I really believe that sort of the magic of four by four hundred in so many ways is like clarity of what to expect from all of your growth levers and then how to build the financial system to support it. Like I think that's honestly part of the magic is we keep our OPEX really, really low. We're relentless about pulling out margin in our supply chain so that our demand engine works. Uh, And we don't put ourselves in an obligation where we have to be winning at outcomes that are really, really hard to achieve. And I would imagine it comes down to messaging in those ads that you want to get, you know, $1 in, $2 out. What what types of messaging won on that? Like, who are you targeting? Are you targeting, uh, does Facebook allow you to say, this guy likes baseball? Are they accurate on that? Uh, yeah. And then and then what kind of messaging is actually like converting a sale? And are, yeah. you, are you even targeting the guy or are you targeting his wife? So it's interesting. Like, so as is the case in many times, there's like a, there was one ad and I think, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me. It's in our article, but I think there's an, one ad that we spent $700,000 on. Like, there often is, like in those early days, a hero. And what it is, is it's my partner, Corey, standing in front of a desk that we made in our office, um, describing the wallet. He's in a baseball hat. He's got a mustache and he looks like sort of a, you know, average dude. And he's just explaining what he loves about the wallet. He's explaining what it is, how it works. He takes card, like the, the credit cards out of the wallet, puts them back in. And that's like the extent of the ad. <laughs> and it's it's not rocket science, but the thing about we love about um, certain brands is like I, I like to say that what wins on Facebook is niche and novel. Okay. And so what that means is novel as in something people haven't seen before. 
and niche as in it's for a very specific group of people. And this sort of hits both of those pretty well, which is that you can put this as a product on white. And if you're a baseball fan, you're going to stop and check it out because it's cool and it's beautiful. And like, oh, I've never seen that too many times before. And then niche, there's a very specific group of people that this is for. If you love baseball, this is for you, right? And so in that sense, it makes it a fairly easy, like you don't have to be a overly sophisticated marketer to make those things really clear. Um, Andrew, who runs 4x400, he trumpets all the time that the primary job of a marketer is clarity, right? And so in this case, it was to make it really, really clear that this is a, ba- a, uh, a wallet made from baseball glove leather. And that was the primary objective and then to drive people into it. And then we did some cool things around scarcity. Like, So the first thing that we did when we bought the brand was we moved from the core product line being made 100% from baseball glove wallet or baseball glove leather to just the interior pockets being made from baseball glove leather. And the rest of it was US grain steer hide. That gave us the ability to mass produce them. And then what we do is we'd release once a quarter um, a limited collection of wallets that were made 100% from baseball glove leather with a story associated with them. So we, we played on the scarcity to drive some cool marketing. We did stories like we did a Negro League collection and then we did a collection that all included signatures. And then, you know, um, we, we created this way that you could send us your glove and we would turn it into a wallet. And we did this story of a guy who, <laughs> this really cool story that we filmed where a guy <clears throat> sent us a wallet and said, hey, I, you know, I've been trying to meet my biological father. I've never met him before. Turns out he's a big, big baseball fan and I'm go, I'm taking a train ride to go meet him in San Diego for the very first time. Um, and I want to make him a wallet and would, and you guys can come and film the interaction. And so we did a story around that. So like we did a lot of cool stories. We met like the foremost collectors of, of old baseball gloves in the world. And we did one collection just built exclusively from that guy's collection and went out there and filmed him and took out his stories. So we did a lot of really cool storytelling um, to help add an air of like, like coolness and authenticity to the brand that I think helped dis- differentiate from some of the other uh, brands that were in the space. I'm going to go a weird direction here and just try to riff with you. And I think I might have brought this up to you, but a long time ago, I was, I was sitting on my couch and it just sparked in my head. Like, how, how can you utilize uh, underpaid baseball players to build a brand, right? And so this you know, might strike a chord in your heart. I know on our first episode, I think you said you got paid $400 a month or something like that in the minor yeah, leagues. Yeah. Even when you get to the majors, which is you know roughly four to six years later, you get 500k. And I know some people listening are like, "Oh, 500k must be nice." But like, look, they are bringing so yeah. much more value than the 500k they get for 3 years, and if they aren't good for 3 years, they're going to get dropped anyway or they'll go to arbitration and maybe they'll get 660k. You know what I mean? Like uh and so my brain started thinking of like, "How can we how can you build a brand where you utilize up and coming baseball players who haven't made a lot of money as your influencers, right? And give them a piece of the brand." And so my brain goes immediately to drops like what was there a point ever where you discussed this where you were like and i'm just going to use uh jose barrios from the twins right at one point he was making 500k and he was easily a number two starter in the major leagues uh i don't think they're doing anything with their gloves i don't think they're contractually obligated to throw their gloves away or not use them but could you have gone to jose barrios who probably had you know some cool puerto rican flag glove uh and made um, wallets out of that and done some amazing job, shared the revenue with him. It would have been a huge hit for you guys. You would have got a ton of publicity. You, I mean, you wouldn't even need to, need to make money off of it in order to get the the PR. Yeah. And that's exactly what we would have done, right? Like that's, that. those were all things that we had discussed. You're hitting it exactly on the head is like, there should have been a collection, like in a dream scenario, you have like 
a limited collection. You convince somebody to let you use Cody Bellinger gives you his glove from the world series and you make a collection of stuff out of that. Like that's where the brand should go is to continue to do rad stuff like that. Um, like one of the things, the new people that bought it as like a microcosm of this is that they're actually like collectors. They're, they're into trading cards and hobbyists and stuff. And so they were really smart about understanding which signature names would mean more to the community than others. So they took all the wallets that had like Willie Mays or Ted Williams or like signature gloves of people that really mattered. And they raised the price like $500 as soon as they got them and then sold them, right? So they understood the way to even create distinction amongst the wallets in a more clear way. So I think exactly what you're saying is right, is that you would use these scarce drops in the coolest ways possible. Like my dream for the brand, when we thought about trying to make it really, really big, was that FC Goods would become um, repurposed Americana. Like I wanted to go beyond baseball gloves to repurpose music record. Like we were at one point looking at buying up a bunch of old vinyl and turning it into stuff, buying up old boxing gloves, seats of Harley Davidson's. We started looking at, we looked at uh, interiors of old fighter jets, like parachute material. Like we wanted to repurpose Americana. And I think there's still a huge play if you could pull that off and then drive these really specific like um, cool drops as the way to continue to engage with the brand. Like I think there's a huge brand there if you do that. And if you were committed to it, it's just a, it's hard when your supply chain is like scarce goods. Like it makes it harder, right? To source it and find it and figure out how to work with it. And like, it's just, it's a grind, but it's a really cool business that I think is sitting right there that you're tapping into. Yeah, I think I, look, I have this weird love for baseball that most people don't have. I know you have it too. And whenever I do decide to build a new brand, like once I you know finish what I've started so far, it's going to be around that. I don't know how I bring in baseball players, but like my heart goes out to a lot. I'm a huge Twins fan. So like just a, a good example is Mitch Garver. Uh, in 2019, Mitch Garver hit 31 home runs and 300 at-bats. That's the best season of a catcher since Mike Piazza. Um, he had a little rough year last year. He was injured. Um, first ball of spring two days ago, hits the ball 106 miles an hour. He's back. He's going to have an absolute monster of a season and he makes five hundred and seventy two thousand dollars right, uh, or right. something like that like and he and he's old right he's a late bloomer yeah, like he's never gonna get the free agency yeah right you were a late bloomer as well so you know how that goes like it, he's you know gonna be in his mid-30s by the time he's a free agent he'll never get paid he might get some arbitration cash um and, and again he's gonna make 20 million dollars if he continues on this path through arbitration good for him but like he deserves so much more and i think they have the ability to do more you know athletes are turning into entrepreneurs as well like uh trevor may another former twin he's huge on twitch he's uh plays a lot of call of duty and Fortnite and things like that and uh i think that's the future and, and i want to be a part of that i, I want to be a part of baseball as well and so i don't know where that's going to go uh certainly going to be like first the person i call is you like you want you want a piece of this let's figure out what we're doing um and I think we even talked about there was a company uh, I can cut this out if we want to, but there was a company making like posters uh, of different plays yeah. Um, yeah. that you had mentioned, you know, might be available. And and that even that intrigued me. I don't know if that's the right one for me, but like there's I, I want to do something in there. That's where my passion lies. And so whether it's uh, me hopping behind the microphone after every single Twins game and talking about it and uh, seeing who cares and, and, and selling ad spots or something of the sort, I, I prefer physical products. I prefer e-commerce. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but uh, I'm happy to riff on ideas someday if you ever want to do something. Well, dude, yeah. I mean, so so the thing you're describing is a company called Princeton Replays, which is like uh, on-demand prints of really cool plays. Like you guys could check it out. But my entire – the way I ended up where I'm at, uh, it goes back before FC Goods. It's Brian Garofalo again. Um, he brought my partner at the like back when I was working for Lucid Fusion, which is the last agency I was an employee of. That's now Vayner Commerce. They were acquired by Vayner Media, and uh, I was an employee there. And Jordan, who was my 
first business partner. He and I started Common Thread Collective together. He, um, Brian Garofalo brought him an idea for an apparel company called The Maple Union. Okay. And The Maple Union was going to be this Americana brand built around baseball as the primary story. And that's how we got brought, that's how I got brought together with Jordan because Brian brought it to Jordan and Jordan was like, ah, this is, I don't know what I could do with this, but let me bring Taylor in. The five of us were getting ready to start this company and it didn't end up happening for a myriad of different reasons, but that's on the back burner for me still. Like FC Goods, Princeton Replays, we work with Breaking Tees and 47 brand and like all these cool licensees of baseball. Like it's, it's going to be a part of me forever. And even dibs and the things that we're into are all this sort of this expression of the same passion um, in the space. So I'm with you, man. We're going to, we'll, we'll find it. And I'm sure there's many more plays to be made in this part of the world. So speaking of brand, you just brought back to my attention. You tweeted, uh, I don't know, months ago, I can't believe this never worked. And you tweeted like this baby basketball line. Yes, and my yeah. brain went to like, why, number one, why didn't that work? That looked incredible. And then number two, like, I want to go baseball, right? But then I realized basketball's, you know, the sport right now. Uh, it's easily catching the NFL. Uh, and so, like, can you talk through, like, that brand? I'm shocked that didn't work. And then where is it? Is it just dead? Is it something, like, you hope to try to, you know, revive and try again? So, yeah. So, th- this is th- this is a perfect example of sort of what I, what I say, when, like, what are the mechanics of something that works? Like... <clears throat> Oh, so the company you were describing was a company called Opening Day. Okay. Just what a brilliant name for a kid's sports company, right? Right off the bat, right? Like Opening Day. And so the, the theme was like I had twin little boys. And at the time, like I hated every sports thing that was available for them to purchase. It was also cheesy, right? Like if you go look at any of the like kids' baseball tees, they all just like say really cheesy sayings or the prints are sort of dumb. And so like we wanted to create sort of a cool, like if you were an athlete, you'd be proud of your kid wearing or using these products, right? And so that was that was the vision. And so we had these like sheets that looked like basketball courts they, with your kid's name on them. And we had onesies that were like full football uniforms and um, all sorts of cool stuff. Um, so there's a few things that we did really wrong. One is like the margin on the product sucked. It sucked. Um, and so like we spent way too much cash. Second, we, we made way too many products. We like made like 50 SKUs to start or something stupid. Um, and the thing about kids' clothes is like they grow out of them really fast. So you need a bunch of sizes, right? So there's inventory risk associated really quickly. Um, so we did too much too fast. Um, and this is, this is a very common mistake early on uh, is like, you're just like, oh, I have all these ideas and I'm going to make all of them without validating any of them and without really having a clear head about what the actual econo- unit economics need to be for this to win. So I would just say we were sloppy. Um, so if we went back and did it again, I still believe in it. I still believe it could really win. Uh, we'd have to do it very different, um, and we'd have to we'd have to figure out um, just it would just be much more efficient. But I loved the brand. OpeningDaySupply.com. We probably lit four hundred thousand dollars on fire uh, though trying to trying to do it, and and that was our lesson around us as product developers is not the way to go. Is that URL still working? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it does it. I don't. It is don't a. One step left, finish setting up your Shopify store. Yeah. I can uh, give you some show notes of some good stuff. I, I Look, I saw your pictures and I was blown away. And now it, my house is slowly filling up with baby stuff constantly. Totally. Um, and I'm looking around and I'm like, Man, all this stuff is so plain Jane and boring. And like she bought like a, and I don't remember the cute phrase, but she brought home like a onesie that, to take him home from the hospital that was basketball related or baseball related. Um, what do you got there? What are you holding up? So this is the crib cover. Okay. So this is, I forgot I had this. So this is a basketball court crib sheet. 
and it's like says the dream center and you could put your kid's name on it. But like this thing is fire. I love this thing. Yeah, so I have still fantastic. have so much of this stuff, but uh, yeah, sorry. I know that's not great podcasting to show things on video, but yeah, well, that's incredible. I'm sure people can use Wayback machine and see what you have there. But I thought when you tweeted that I was blown away why it didn't work. It makes sense that you guys try to do too many things at once. Uh, yeah. I hope you at some point, like try to bring that back. Cause I thought that was just really cool. Really good idea. Um, certainly I would assume somebody has the license and they're making, you know, licensed onesies and, and bottles and pacifiers and things like that. But um, I think you could be generic and, and win here. Well, so, the, so, the, so that was one of the things, things we tried too. Like, so like between you and I, one of the things like that we were like, well, it's like, well, maybe we just need licensed. Maybe they, maybe they don't want generic. So we actually like mocked up like that crib sheet as like the golden state warriors thing and would run ads with it. And like to try and find out if people really wanted it. Um, and we just couldn't, like, it was crazy. The, the ads would get so much engagement, but the conversion rate um, was not great. And it, part of it was we were pricing it super aggressive to make up for the margin. Like there was, a, it was a lot of business mistakes to be candid of why it didn't work more than anything. But uh, yeah, like so many lessons in these things, man. Did you get any pushback from like, the license holder on like well, we did it for like a day right like to see see if it would work and we weren't trying to actually sell it we were trying to prove that it would be worth going to get the license and pay for it so we did it very quickly of course we would have gotten smacked if we if if anybody had seen it we'd have gotten a cease and desist quickly but it was just a mechanism to see like okay is this is this the conversion problem like if i serve this to warriors like we would go like parents of you know children zero to one who are also golden state warriors fans and we're like this has to work. There's no way that this isn't going to work. Um, and it just didn't. It just didn't in the way that we heard. And I think another thing is like you're emotionally compromised when you are really deeply the customer. Like I, you know, as a parent, a former professional athlete, parent of baby kids, like I was, I, it was hard for me to see past my own opinion of the thing in a lot of ways. So I don't know. Maybe it would work in a different, uh, a different alternate universe, but uh, it certainly didn't with us. Yeah, I'm, pat, uh, uh, I'm fascinated rather about some brands like this. So there's a company, and, and you can pull it up if you want to. Soda, like Minnesota, SodaStick.com, uh, and they make some of the most like interesting uh, shirts and hats and things around Minnesota baseball players. You know, Viking football, wild hockey, things like that. I have no idea how big this business is, but they advertise on these like niche podcasts, which aren't so niche. The the one I listen to from the Twins is like the tenth. Uh, best baseball podcast out there. Uh, they have a, a pretty giant following considering the twins are a small market team, but I'm fascinated by those little brands. And so I like that you went generic, but you know, I do wonder like, would you have to niche down and almost have like pieces for every market? And then that would lead to just inventory headaches. And well, that's the hard thing about license nightmare. Business, right? Like that we, so we work with one of the biggest licensees um, in 47 brand and it's a hard business for that exact reason, right? Like you, you, you're required via your license to produce all of the inventory, but the reality is like only a few of them sell, right? So it's, it's a really challenging inventory game to merchandise licensed gear. And, you know, you've got, it's also margin tough, right? Cause you're paying a royalty on every product along with the production. So in that sense, like, and I've, I've our very first business at power balance, we did a bunch of licensing deals. So I, I've spent a lot of time in the license space and, it's actually like in a lot of cases, not the most awesome business <laughs> um, because in a lot of cases, you're taking what is a global audience or a nationwide audience and you're dividing it into a tiny subset, right? And, and so I, I tend to want to go the opposite direction with products as much as possible. Um, so it, it's hard uh, and that that margin hit, they want their piece of it and understandably so. So like at the same time, like Igloo Coolers, 
who's one of our clients, they do awesome jobs with licensing. They do stuff with Disney and uh, Star Wars and Post Malone and all sorts of people and they crush licensing. So it really just depends on the, the economics of the product and what the audience is and how cool and novel the collaboration is. So it, it can be good and bad, but there's no guarantee just because you have a license, you're going to make money. Well, and we love sports. So sports is the easy one to think of, but uh, I'm thinking of... Um... Paul Miller, he owns Cozy Phones. Uh, you know, you go to Disney, you go to Nickelodeon and things like that. And so have you worked with any brands that have licenses from more broad applications, more so than like, you know, Yankees are a huge team and they have fans everywhere, but it's still a small subset compared to a broad audience. Yeah, totally. We've done stuff, like I said, Igloo's got Disney and Star Wars and all sorts of giant ones. We worked with a um, a beauty company that did a bunch of releases with Disney. Um, so yeah, we've worked with a, a few different companies that do all sorts of different licensed stuff um, in collaborations. And in a lot of cases, they, they have a really, especially when you start talking about Disney or Star Wars, like those audiences are just rabid, right? Like they have insatiable appetites. Um, so, so in some cases it can be super, super powerful. They, they, they move slow. They're hard to like, you have to get approvals on every little thing, right? Like, so there's, there's pros and cons depending on um, the asset type. And then the other thing I'll say is that when you're a brand, the LTV on licensed merchandise is, really, really poor because they're not buying your brand. They're buying the license, right? And so in that case, there's very little connection to the underlying asset um, when you do that. So it's just something you have to be cognizant of if you're building your brand off the back of licensed merchandise. I think you'd have to have a very, very unique, cool product uh, in order to have them you know, want to share it more so than just share, like you said, like a, you know, if I bought a, a twins hat, uh, I'm sharing the twins brand. I'm not sharing the hat. There's nothing cool about the hat, right? It's just another hat. And so right. uh, I think yeah. cozy phones might fall into that, uh, example. I mean, they work great for kids to just throw a headband with headphones on their head. And, and I think the application is just as cool as the fact that it has, you know, Paw Patrol or whatever it has on it. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that is cool. Um, yeah, in that case, like you can, you've got a product that's unique enough to carry its own identity as well. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I'm gonna have to get Paul on here. I think he's got a heck of a story to tell. Well, I'd love to dive into, um, a a little bit of uh, like how your other companies work, right? So you have common thread co, which I assume is running all of the ads for four by 400 common thread co is your agency. Uh, you're shaking your head, so that's not true, but uh, I'm going to give you a little, uh, a little cloud here on your website. You have the North Face, Lululemon, Colourpop, uh, Igloo, Theragun, Dude Wipes, Diff Glasses, Wilson, uh, Supply. I mean, you've got some big names on here that you guys are running marketing for. Uh, how does that play into 4x400? And, and, and like, again, where, do, where does your role personally, like, where do you sit above or in these companies? So my day-to-day responsibility is I'm the CEO of the agency of Common Thread Collective. Um, so, and then I'm the managing partner of Dream Labs, the holding company. So when we act in the, the holding company, um, my job is sort of the chair of that board, if you will, or the managing partner of that board. And then, uh, but my day-to-day is the CEO of the agency. So Common Thread Collective is a traditional service agency um, in that we provide uh, growth as a service to our clients. And it, we focus exclusively on consumer product e-commerce businesses between zero and 50 million. Um, and we help them grow in a variety of ways. Our primary services are paid media management, uh, email, SMS, uh, and then creative across those funnels. So that's our, that's my day to day is leading that. We've got about 96 people now, I think, uh, inside of that company, um, and get to work with a lot of rad businesses, um, learning and, uh, helping, helping them achieve their dreams. 
And then I, I want to circle back on that to something cool you're doing, but also you have your admission, uh, co huge prop from Bill D'Alessandro, who, uh, looking back, Bill was episode number 31 on this show. If you want to go listen to Bill, he acquires businesses as well. Bill's one of the smartest people I think I've ever met. Um, so definitely go check that out. But Bill gave you props on that episode, uh, saying he, and it might've been afterwards when we were talking that he thinks that's simply like your guys's training methods. When you hire a new employee, you give them this training method. And then at some point you must've said, wow, we should sell this. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah. So I think there was two things that admission was intended to solve. One is that if you draw a curve of like all e-commerce businesses, um, and let's say the y-axis is the number of businesses and the x-axis is revenue, right? And you were to draw that a curve, like most of the businesses are zero to 1 million. Like most e-commerce, that's the largest chunk of the market. And the reality is the economics of them hiring us as an agency don't make sense for them. So it was like we developed an agency to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, but didn't have a product for the largest portion of the market. That didn't make sense to me. And so we wanted to develop a product for that portion of the market. And we so that's what we built Admission to do was to serve that early stage to teach um, entrepreneurs to manage their own ads, like it, at which I believe they should be doing at that size of business. Um, and it's 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 done a bunch of additional things then beyond that. So one, now we get to have this like outlet for teaching and coaching this incredible group of people that are really close to our mission in helping entrepreneurs. These are people whose, you know, mortgages are on the line every day. Like these are the people whose, whether they pay themselves is dependent on whether these ads work, right? Like that's a different thing. Um, and then it's also a great uh, breeding ground for clients. So our clients grow up in there. They become bigger businesses that can hire us. It also is a place where we find deal flow for four by 400. So a lot of those businesses are the ones that we want to acquire. So it built, gives us access to all of that. And then the new thing that it's doing that we didn't expect is that what happens is a lot of people like Bill have their employees join admission to learn. Um, and so it becomes a development ground for media buyers that we want to hire. And we just launched a program specifically that we call the uh, admission scholarship program where th every quarter we, we have a cohort of people apply to learn how to become a media buyer. And then we hire out of that group. So it's a, it's a talent development firm. It's an employee development firm. It's an expression of our um, mission in a really, really cool way and a cool revenue stream for us on some nice MRR off of that recurring business. And what we do is we have all of our media buyers are in admission. You can hire them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. They're in Slack interacting with everybody. So our people get to teach and feel the impact of their work. And then all the content that we develop as training material gets to be used in two places. It gets to be used to train our employees, our new people when they join, and also train in admission. So we get sort of uh, additional value out of investment in training content. Well, there's certainly people listening here who fall into that bucket of like, you know, I can't go hire Common Thread Co. or any agency to run Facebook ads for us, but I want to learn them. Heck, I might even fall into that. I'm very much a keyword SEO, Google AdWords kind of guy. Give you, give me your 30 second elevator pitch because I know there's people listening here who should be in there. And then, you know, what is it? It's only like 250 a month, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 without a doubt the highest ROI investment that we offer. Like I I would put. I will personally guarantee we offer a full money back guarantee on the value that you will get out of this thing. So what you get for $250 a month is you get our entire library of all the content we've ever created. So this is video content, templates, articles, um, everything. You get over, I think the the partnership affiliate value of all of our partners is something like $25,000 a year if you use it, like an insane return on just all the software that you use in the tech stack as a partnership. 
You get to be part of our Slack community, which literally every one of our employees I'm in, everybody's in that you can ask questions all day long about whatever you want. We have a fractional CFO in there uh, from Bean Ninjas, Wayne Richard, who like is there to answer financial questions, We ha- who you should talk to BK. He's awesome, by the way. We have a mental health professional that's in there to help you process anything that you're struggling from, TMYD. Um, so the amount of resource that you get surrounded with is just incredible. And then on top of that, we do biweekly webinars where we're coaching. And then pretty soon you're going to get, um, also access to our data tool as part of the community as well. So we're, we're constantly amplifying the value of that offering. And it's just an incredible place to walk alongside other entrepreneurs and media buyers and learn together and get direct access to data and questions to be answered and all sorts of things. Uh, I think it's incredible. I, I was in there with uh, my now former partner, Brian Angel, who's been on yeah. the show. Uh, Brian did some cool stuff with uh, our standing desk and the treadmill desk company that we acquired. I think it's unbelievable value for $250. So if you're wanting a way to learn Facebook ads, but also be interactive, I think it's it's not a course, right? It's very interactive. Oh, yeah. You you can get feedback. There's a, a ton of calls. Uh, sounds like there's a Slack channel, um, which I, I wasn't part of, but Brian was. I remember him saying like he got chosen one week and they helped him make ads which turned into uh and, and you can see them on in movement like him having his kids come interrupt him now that we were all home for yeah. covid it was some fantastic ads that they were able to make out of there and so if you're thinking about this at all go to your admission.co uh and sign up uh so i want to circle back to comment thread co if you would you do two things there that i personally just want to ask you about and so number one is like you want to help your employees' dreams come true. And so I briefly touched on this on a recent episode with Tyler Sickmeyer of what he's trying to do with his employees. We actually talked about you and I thought it was kind of cool what you guys were doing. I want to hear from the horse's mouth how you're doing that. I've hired, I've hired poorly, if I'm honest with you. I've been part of a company where we hired really, really well. And so now that I'm I'm building my own machine here in Wisconsin, I want to know how to how to how to do that best. And and so you're a, a great example of somebody who's been a great leader and built a great company and you probably made a gazillion mistakes. And so like how are you helping your employees' dreams come true? What does that even look like? Yeah, so it's a weird phrase, right? So early on, and I think every business has to get really honest with this question, okay? And the question is, why would anybody want to work for you? <laughs> like, just get really honest with yourself. And not just anybody, but like the really talented people that you want to work for you. Why would they turn down every other opportunity to come work for you? And it's sort of like the same question you have to ask about your product, right? Like, which is like, why would someone buy this product over every other product? And the more like objective and honest with yourself you can get about this, the more powerful the potential is to change the answer. And so early on, um, we didn't have a lot of good answers to the question. We had a crappy office. We weren't making very much money. Our clients were suspect. Um, and so the idea that anybody would want to come work for us, I, it was hard for me to justify. I, I, at the time we were living in Orange County surrounded by some of the coolest cultural brands like Vans and Stance Socks and Google has an office here. And it's like, they have basketball courts and chefs and free lunch every day. Like, why would anybody choose me over any one of those things? And I used to wrestle with this question all the time. And the answer that we came up with was we believed we could care more about people than anybody else. Okay. Now that sounds like some hogwash, like woo 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 bullshit, right? Like, so the the, the key was though, how are we going to make that real? How is that going to be true? And so the answer was, well, I've worked in a company before and I know what it feels like to feel like you are working to make somebody else money or working to help somebody else achieve their dreams. And you're just sort of a, a person in the system. And so we thought if we could create a symbiotic relationship where 
I ask you to come work for my dreams and I'm willing to work for yours. I'm willing to ask you, what do you want for your life? And I will help you go there no matter what the answer is that we could do something special. And so that was the premise. You come work for me, we'll work for you. And whatever whatever it is that you want for your life, like we will help you achieve it. We have a cool network. We know a lot of people. We'd be willing to go to places that other people wouldn't. And so it started with my partner, Josh, going to lunch with our employees and asking them that question. What do you want for your life? And what's crazy is the first person that we did it with, his answer was, I want to start a competitive agency. <laughs> and so we were like, oh shit, like, are we serious about this? Like, are we actually going to do that? And we said, we're committed to this. We taught him uh, how to uh, file an LLC, set up a QuickBooks account, launch his brand and threw a party the day that he left. And since that moment, we've been fully committed to this idea. And what began as this like little sort of spring of going to lunch um, became what is now um, every one of our employees meets with a licensed therapist every other week for six months to identify their dream for their life. Um, they The first Monday of every month at CTC is something we call Dream Day. Yesterday, we had 12 people announce their dreams. And that's everything from an employee standing up, sharing about his past as an immigrant, dealing with an abusive mother that's prevented him from dealing with who he is and what he wants to to be able to do to develop relationships and his desire to solve that to people saying they want to learn to speak Spanish. Like it runs the gamut. And then we put them into pursuit groups. So everybody who's declared a dream gets in a group with five people. And it's a sort of like an accountability group where every two weeks they're checking in on each other's progress towards their dream. And then when they achieve it, they come back to dream day and share what they're doing and then go back through the process. And this is a massive financial investment for us. Um, and we've actually spun it into a separate company now called Tell Me Your Dreams, where we provide this service for other uh, other companies as well. And what, what has happened as a result of it is that we thought that the people would have dreams about other things. They'd want to be zookeepers or travel the world or have nothing to do with our company. But people started dreaming about CTC. They started dreaming about, I want to launch an office in New York. I want to launch a branding department. I want to become a better leader. I want to whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's now the backbone of our culture. It's who we are. It, and there's something really powerful about when you realize that that we we define a dream as a future reality you desire to create. And when you when you become um, participatory in shaping your future, and you take ownership and accountability into that, like there's a lot of possibility that gets unlocked. Um, and we've seen some really rad things happen alongside people. And then it allows us to step into our relationships with our clients where our role is the same. We are the guide for them on the pursuit of their dreams. And if we can believe about their business, what they can't yet believe about it themselves, then we can be really helpful. So that's a lot. It's been a big journey for us, but um, it's absolutely the backbone of our culture and who we are. I can only imagine what it feels like from the employee side, right? I, I was a number at every company I worked at. I was replaceable. In fact, I was told often, if you don't like it, there's the door. Um, and it was not fun. I didn't like working there. I hated my life. Uh, and so I imagine that once you are on their team and once you help them get any wins under their belt, they're going to want to you know, help you get wins too, right? I think uh, Alex Sharfin says something like uh, from X amount, you know, zero to 1 million or 1 million to 10 million. It's all about how, you know, you hire employees about how you can, those employees can help you get ahead. And then if you want to go from 10 to a hundred million, you have to figure out how you get your employees ahead. Um, and so that makes a ton of sense. And the way you describe it uh, makes me kind of honestly c- come work for you, um, which is weird because I don't ever want to have a job again, but like, that's exciting. I appreciate 
what you're doing over there. Uh, is is there a way to like refer people to you? I can think of a few people in my head that might be a good fit for you, and, and I'm sure they would love working for you. And like, uh, I I know you're you're always hiring. I always see you on Twitter, like uh, approaching people. And so, uh, what does that look like? If there's anybody listening who's like, man, I want to work for this guy. You can go to our careers page on our website. It's the easiest way. We're growing like crazy. Or you can DM me on Twitter. Those are the two best ways. Um, we are. We, we like. We're, we're going to hire probably another, hopefully, 100, 120 people this year. Um, and we want amazing, awesome, talented people who want to use us like a trampoline. Like I say this all the time, and I mean it, is that the best thing that you can do is come to CTC, grow and learn like crazy, and then go get your dream job from there. Like I just had a call yesterday with another one of our employees. Like, the crazy thing is like our employees get poached like crazy to go lead e-commerce growth businesses. Like I had another one of our employees yesterday that's going to lead growth for an crazy, incredible brand. And she was on the phone with me just sharing like how much she entered in as an intern and now four years later is leading growth for a brand that she could have never imagined. And like that to me is a celebration of the CTC story. That's not a, of course it sucks to lose her. And of course, you know, like it's going to be difficult to replace, but that's what we're here to do is like we served each other for a season. For four years, she was awesome. She was an awesome employee and she served our dream and the growth of our company really, really well. And the fact that we served her and got her closer to where she wants to be is like a perfect example of what should be a mutually beneficial relationship. Well, I, I'm jealous. I'm certainly going to lean on you to, to ask questions along the way as, a, as I try to build a, a, a team, but it, it's impressive what you've done. Uh, is there some examples you can give besides the one you just gave? Like where, where have people gone on to, um, you know, that have, have worked their way through your system and, and moved on to bigger and better things? Yeah. So in the, in the last 45 days, like, so one of our employees is now leading growth at Cuts Clothing, um, Kyle Lawrence. He's awesome. Kyle showed up. He has an awesome story where he, uh, he applied for a job in influencer marketing. Uh, he didn't get it. Um, we turned him down. He came back and applied for our internship program. Um, this was three years ago and, uh, he got into the internship program and then we lost the media buyer right before the internship program started. And we, so we hired him. And in three years he went from, you know, a media buyer with very little Facebook experience to now leading growth for, you know, a, a eight figure plus brand. He's doing awesome. Another one of our employees is leading growth for love wellness, which is an amazing women's health company. She was with us for two and a half years, came in with middle. So it's like, that's just in the last 45 days that I'm thinking of, um, in, in ways that, and it's like, candidly, like I would try and hire my people too. Like we invest more in their growth and learning than, than anybody. Now my job is to make the, make it hard as hell to get them because you're going to have to overpay them and you're going to have to pay them really, really freaking well to pull them out of our ecosystem because they know they're going to keep learning like crazy where we are and growing and getting more opportunities. But when that comes, like I want them to go chase it. Like it's crazy to me the idea of being an entrepreneur who was a terrible employee who wanted to do his own things all the time and had his own dreams that I would ever expect someone to to turn down some dream or opportunity that they have for me. Like, of course they shouldn't. And so um, we want to continue. And this is why like one of the things I always talk about is that you worry about losing um, – like if you're a bucket of water, you lo- you worry about losing water. But if you're a well – you don't worry about losing water, right? And so one of the things I talk to our people, like our leaders all the time is we want to be a wellspring. We want to be where the water comes from, where it develops, where it constantly is refreshed, not something where we have like uh, this scarcity mindset that if something's taken from us, we won't have more. And so whether that's ideas, like people will ask me sometimes, like, why do you share openly about everything that you're doing? And it's like, well, because we're a wellspring of ideas. If you take my idea, I have more and we're going to continue to build a place that 
um, creates more ideas. Um, so you can't actually take from us. You can't, you can't diminish it if you're a wellspring. And if you can have that, that mindset with people too, um, I think it will end up being a place that people will want to come. I think there, I, I, I can think of a few people listening who, uh, should definitely try to work for you. Here's the tip. Uh, we were on a call and you shared someone's application that blew you away. And it wasn't just someone sending you their resume with a cover letter. It was like a whole notion doc. And I'm sure you can explain even more what actually gets Taylor's attention. Cause if you, if, if somebody tweets you, you're going to answer, you're that guy who responds to everything. Very Gary V esque. I love it. Um, but how does somebody actually get your attention longer than one second? Well, so I think what you're describing is like, where do I engage? Who am I? Like, if you if you send me a long email, I'm probably not going to read it, right? Like, if you send me, you know, like a, my 700 LinkedIn message, probably not going to read it. But if you DM me on Twitter, I will respond to you, right? So, so one, there's just an amount of information to know who I am and where I engage. But so, who you're talking about? So, I'll I'll, I'll call him out personally, Andrew Silver, who I met on Twitter, like. He applied for a job. And the second I can hire internationally, I'm going to hire him if someone hasn't scooped him up already. But like he sent me – again, this is how I communicate. I publish things on Notion. The other day, I've, I've published two resources recently. I published uh, an e-commerce finance resource and one on NFTs and I published them both on Notion. So you know I read and use Notion. Right. So if you send me something on a different platform, it's going to be – I have to set up an account or whatever it might be. I probably might not read it. But Notion, I love. And then what he sent me was – you talked about this earlier, BK, where you hate reading. So like if someone ever applied to a job for you, they probably shouldn't make you read something. They should probably send you a podcast. So what Andrew did was he sent me a video. He knows I love Loom. He sent me a Loom recording of himself that basically explained what I was going to engage with. Here's everything that you have below. Here's why I'm interested in this specific position. And then he gave me not only his resume and all the necessary things, but also like, here's some examples of how I think. Here's an essay I've written. Here's some tweet threads that I put together. He gave me everything I would need to know to really understand who he is. And the primary thing is in our business, communicating with clients with clarity in the role he was applying for is the number one job. That Notion doc did that. You communicated clearly in a way I could engage the material. And it was just like that versus an email with a cover letter that says to whom it may concern. And then it's five paragraph essay about you talking about yourself and then your resume that looks like every other resume. Like, that sucks. Like, I'm just going to tell you, it's so mind numbing to engage with endless amounts of that content. And it's actually really not hard to create something that sticks out. So if somebody knew, number one, you use Notion, you love Loom, you're huge into sports cards, you love NFTs, you yes. want to make entrepreneurs dreams come true. Like what would be the the ideal scenario that somebody, you know, ships you a, obviously they're going to ship you a $7,000 Kobe Bryant rookie card, but like what, what could they send you where it would like really catch your attention? But let me, let me, let me ask you like, so let's set aside a $7,000 Kobe. Let's say like you found out that like, if you could figure out that right there, and this is really because of you, all those cards are Bowman Chrome first of the top 100 prospects, right? That's what I collect, right? I'll show you. So we've got, let's see, Riley Green, CJ Abrams, Noelve Marte. Like that's 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 my game. And that those are 70 bucks a piece. If somebody sent me one of those with a note, I sure as hell would get back to you. Right? Like, and and, and it's even simpler than that because I just told you I'll respond to you if you DM me on Twitter. But like there's something about it's not hard to know someone differently than most people. <laughs> like it really isn't. I'm very public. Like I'm on a lot of podcasts. I'm on Twitter all the time. Like my opinions are not secret and what I care about is not secret. Um, and so it's like, if you really care, like the thing about a job that I think people sometimes underestimate is that we're talking about your life. Like we're talking about the, the thing you're going to offer more time to than anything else. Like you're telling me that a $70 card isn't worth the, worth the cost of acquisition of that job. 
Like what, what would you be willing to pay for your dream job? That's a question I think we don't ask enough. Like, and the answer should be probably a lot more than you think. Um, and because you, there's nothing more transformative than being in an ecosystem that will alter the trajectory of your life. And so like, I really believe that we have that place. Um, and so if I wanted in, like I would go to great lengths to figure out how to get the chance to do it. It's hard not to be selfish. Humans totally. are innately selfish. What's in it for me? How do how do I get what I want? And and it's very difficult to just turn the turn it around and say, how do I make Taylor smile? How do I get Taylor, you know? Well, it, it's funny because it's actually the that's the path to get the thing that you want, right? Like, and marriage is the perfect teacher of this, right? Like, I'll give you an example. So I love a clean bedroom. My wife loves a clean kitchen. If what I want is a happy marriage, I should clean the kitchen, not the bedroom, right? It's that simple. And like, even though the thing that I want is a clean bedroom, like it's going to cause me strain and strife if I don't clean the kitchen and understanding that I should clean the kitchen if I want peace and joy and relaxation, like is actually the mechanism by which I get the thing that I want. Right. And what ends up happening too, is that it actually makes my wife want to clean the bedroom for me. Right. So you create this mutually beneficial relationship where at CTC, one of our values is start palms down. Okay. It's this idea that before you ask, come and serve right? And we are in the service business. So our job for each other, and I talk to employees about this all the time. One of the things that employees miss when you're in a corporate setting, if you want to move up the corporate ladder, the number one way to do it is to find out what your manager's KPIs are and be invested in making them come to life. If you can understand what someone else cares about, what they want, and you can go get them what they want, not to try and help them get what you want, you will move up. That That's like, it's a really simple game to play, but it's often lost on people because we we often are so concerned primarily, like you're saying about what can I get? Palms up. What can, what's in it for me? All right. One other cool thing you're doing uh, with CTC, and I, and I, and I do want to you know ask you some questions about it because I'm not quite sure I understand it, is you are selling 80% of your company to your employees. So help me understand what that looks like. And I know there's some like diversity involved here. I think I told you before the call, you or Aaron or whoever wrote the the disclaimer, like you wrote this long article about why you're doing it, what it means. It was so well worded. It was so great English that I don't really know what it said. And so I was like, I got to get him on here to have him tell me in, 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 in Ben talk, if you will, <laughs> what, what exactly you're doing there. So, so this, this has been a, a long journey for both me personally and our organization that um, I'm so grateful for. So Set six months ago or whatever, right? Like the world gets flipped upside down. We're dealing with the George Floyd murders. We're dealing with social unrest. You know, this is right in your backyard, right? Uh, we're talking about this on our Wednesday night calls. And I'm starting like, so we've got this blackout Tuesday. We've got clients asking us about what's going on. And we're being faced with this question about CTC, right? This question about who are we in the midst of this story? And so I dream up a bunch of ideas and I went to one of my employees who's been a longtime friend and coworker. Um, and his name's Chris and he's an, uh, an inspiring black man. And I said, Hey, I've got these ideas. What do you think about these things that CTC could do? And he gave me a transformative answer. That's like altered the course of our future. He said, Taylor, I'm disinterested in appeasing the feeling of discomfort that you have right now. But if you're interested in going on a journey, I have an idea. And man, one that took courage. I'm so appreciative of his honesty. I'm glad we had a relationship where he felt comfortable talking to me that way. Um, but what he was saying to me is that, that what you're trying to do with these ideas is not feel bad anymore. But I actually see some things at CTC that actually I think really could be addressed if you're willing to go deeper. And so he invited us into a journey. He introduced me to a woman um, named Katrina Fry, who runs an organization called Culture Shift. Um, and she helps comp companies um, 
sort of examine their own internal diversity and to chart a different path forward. And she came and spent seven months with us um, doing everything from internal CTC, one-on-one executive coaching, speaking to our leadership team, leading company-wide webinars on all sorts of different things. And we had to examine some of the systems that we had built. Um, Our leadership team is nine people and eight of them are white men. 99% of our equity is owned by white men. Um, Our organization lacks the diversity that we need to serve the future of what I believe our business will be required to serve. Um, I think that, and and what happens is our client base reflects the people that we have. And so we end up serving a very narrow slice of the market. And so I think we have both a uh, ethical imperative and a business imperative to challenge and look internally at who we are and see if we can build a better version of CTC in the future. Part of that then is to examine all of the structures of CTC. So that includes our hiring practices. So the document that you're referencing was five commitments that CTC has made to building a more diverse and equitable future for our company. So part of that is hiring practices, right? Diversity is about the measure of the the demographics of the people inside of your organization. We want to do better there. Inclusion is the experience of the people inside of the organization. So we want to actually assess our people of color inside of our organization having an experience where they feel safe, heard, seen, empowered, cared for, all of those things, just like I want for every one of my employees. And then the E and DEI that people offer us is equity, right? Like, um, And so we had to examine our power structures and say, how are we going to build an organization that actually serves the dreams of all of the people inside of it? Um, and as a, an ownership structure of nine white men, that's a very complex thing to figure out. And so I, I got turned on to a book called The Citizen's Share, um, which is an incredible breakdown of ESOPs, so equity stock option programs, um, and their possibility for bringing more people into ownership, which I think is one of the primary mechanisms of dealing with uh, wealth inequality in the world. That if you go back to what our founders tried to do with the Homestead Act and other things, is that owning property, owning corporate entities is, I think, in a really important mechanism for bridging that um, inequality gap. And I fell in love with the idea that CTC at its roots, our name is Common Thread Collective. And our mission is to help serve the or to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, and so we've dreamt of our employees and serving their dreams and allowing them to shape the future of CTC. And now that's just going to be able to happen practically as they will be the owners of the company, um, more so than any of us. Um, and it will be a, a legal um, reality versus just a philosophical one that we would state. So you tweeted something like "Get access and give it away." Help me understand. What, what what does that mean and what, why does that mean so much to you? Because like immediately I put up my walls. I was like, what are you talking about? I worked my face off to get here. Totally. Uh, and now you want me to just give it all away. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that are really important. So one, um, the idea of giving it away, um, there's a mechanism. So the, the beauty of an ESOP, right, is that it both honors the work done as well as invites a new structure. So I'm not gifting equity, right? There's a compensation. So the way that an ESOP works is there's a third-party trust that represents the employees, okay, that values our business as a third-party objective entity, not me. I don't get to determine the value. They, representing the employees, determine the value. And then there's a deal that's brokered that purchases the company from the employees using the funds of the entity or a bank note, right? So people get paid in an equity exchange. So the equity is being purchased from the existing owners. It's placed in the trust and then distributed to the employees 
um, on the basis of uh, their salary as a percentage of total payroll, right? So there's a there's a mechanism here that does both honors the work that has been developed as well as reimagines a better future. So that's important um, when we talk about that. The second thing though is that this idea of ownership is inviting people into a consideration of what it means to be part of the capital structure versus the labor force, right? Um, you're an entrepreneur. You understand this. You describe the liquidity event that you just described, that you experienced personally, that I've experienced. I was offered in my first business in Power Balance, what we talked about, where they invited me into that consideration. And I got to learn what it meant to be an owner, what it meant to file a K-1 and what the opportunity was to earn beyond labor, beyond my salary. Um, and that was transformative for me as a young person. It was a gift that the people around me believed in me enough to give me that learning and education. And I really believe that this is actually how you create transformative life wealth is by owning valuable assets that produce capital returns, not just in exchange of time for money. Um, so if I can invite more people into that consideration with the tool that I have at my disposal, I think that that is um, consistent with what was offered to me and in a way that I think will affect not just them, but their children and hopefully the places that they go and affect as well. And it'll invite more people into the accountability of ownership. Because the thing about ownership is it's it's not just about you make a bunch of money, right? It's about a sense of uh, responsibility, about accountability for outcomes, about decisions. You're, you're assigned all that goes alongside ownership. Um, but I think to to for us and what we're after, that statement and to invite as many people as possible into that consideration is goes all the way back to that very first mission, Ben, of saying, why would somebody want to work for me versus everywhere else? And I think since day one, we've been after that principle um, and we're going to continue to do that. And I think the fact that we're willing to do it gives us a competitive advantage over everybody else. So I feel like there's some pieces that are going to get, you know, on the wayside here, right? So assuming someone gets some capital ownership, like I love the idea. You're not going to get rich working a nine to five. Um, you're not going to get wealthy working a nine to five. You're hoping to save up enough so that when you're you know old and feeble, you can travel the world maybe a little bit, right? That, that right. whole model is just so dumb to me, um, which is, you know, I, I feel it to my core, which is why I'm an entrepreneur and I rebel against normal. Um, and I love that you're giving it away. However, when you give it away, if you don't provide boatloads of education, um, I would wonder, or I would feel as though the people you're you're and you're not giving it right, you're selling it, but the people that are inheriting that in in one way, shape, or form don't know what to do with it, right? And so there there's a huge educational gap there of like, hey, don't go spend this, uh, or you know, don't go buy things like an education on how wealth actually is accrued and and why maybe they've been sold a lie. Um, there's a lot to teach there that so that they don't. Um, continue following the same path they've been on. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. And I accept the education responsibility, right? Like I, I, in fact, I accept, I accept the education opportunity. Like I am excited to teach people that Ben, like there's nothing I want more than to invite them into that conversation. For some reason, like one of the things I noticed is that that's the response that a lot of people have is like, it's this idea as if people can't come into understanding for a thing that I came under understanding of. Like I didn't know once, someone taught me, someone gave me the chance. And you know what the other thing is? Ownership is the right to fuck it up, right? And that's actually a thing here that I think, and pardon my language, but but I think this is actually really important, is that there's something about actually the right to do it wrong that being an owner entitles you to. And that like, I don't need them to do it right. I don't actually accept responsibility for everything they need to know to do it right. I'm gonna give them the opportunity. And, and but there's something about that that I think is actually critical to the premise of being an entrepreneur is that it doesn't entitle you to success, 
right? In fact, not at all. This CTC equity could be worthless in five years if we all don't do something with it, right? But, but you get the chance to figure it out. And I'm going to come alongside you. We're going to do some amazing things around education. And we like the partners, Ambrose advisors who are doing this with us. And what's so cool is every Monday morning, I start my, start my company meetings with our share price. Here's our share price. Here's how it got there. Here's our trailing 12-month EBITDA. Here's the projected uh, multiple from the from Ambrose Advisors. And so we are going to ongoingly invite people into a level of understanding. And you know what? Like, I teach people how to do way more complicated things than this. Like, I'm not afraid of teaching this. Um, I, I think that sometimes we put this like mystique around financial knowledge because frankly, it reflects how little we were taught that it becomes this thing that we think people can't enter into. And I just go, no, 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 these are, I've got incredibly smart employees that just because they've never been an owner before doesn't mean they can't be. In fact, I think they're incredibly smart and I think that they're, they're gonna get it. And when they become owners, they're actually gonna do better things than me with it because I'm not that smart. And so I think I, think I hope you don't think I was like pushing back saying, here's why you can't. It was more of a question of how are you addressing this? Because it's an obvious, like there's some serious belief systems everyone has around money. Me, more than anybody, I grew up fairly poor and it took a long time for me to realize what wealth was and, and how it could be different. And, and it took a, it took me being in a situation. I wasn't given an opportunity. My first marriage, I married into a family of very wealthy people and I watched it and I went, oh, this is, this is way different than I knew. You know, my dad was putting our, we took like four vacations as kids. We drove the van to San Antonio, Texas, and that was our vacation, right? And then my dad would rob Peter to pay Paul and put it on the next 0% credit card for 15 months and on the next 0% credit card just to pay it off, just to give us a life. And uh, that's all I knew, right? And now, you know, again, as you said, I have this windfall. I'm learning now too. I don't, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I, I sent $25,000 off to our next subject dibs that I might never see again. Was that a good decision? I don't know. I, I own some Bitcoin and Chainlink and, and Uniswap and all kinds of crypto. And I've got baseball cards all around me. And like, um, there's such an education gap there that isn't addressed in school. It's not addressed yeah. in, 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 uh, in, in, so it was more so like, how are you going to address this? This is, a, this is a big project. And I, I admire you for doing this. And, and honestly, I want to learn from you and be able to offer it to people in my ecosystem as well. Yeah. So I think the thing, and, and I apologize, like what you're getting out of me is not just a response to you. It's a response to that being the primary question. And my resistance is the idea that the education is a prerequisite to ownership. And, and, and it wasn't for me, right? Someone gave me equity before I understood what it was. And everything that you're describing is I got to learn along the way and I was given an environment to make mistakes. Maybe this isn't the equity that changes their life, Ben. Maybe it's what they learn about this ownership experience like it was for me. I didn't make any money on power balance. Like I didn't, I, that wasn't, but I, I began to understand, oh, I know who did and I know how and I know when the money got distributed, what that meant and it didn't show up in my salary. Like, so all of that is an environment in which you get to learn. And so my my thing is, is that I just don't think that the education is a prerequisite. Um, it doesn't mean I don't want to offer it. Of course I do. And I want to make myself... And I, I literally, all this week, at Marco Poling with one of my employees talking to him about his personal financial investment. Like I, I am deeply ingrained in this experience for them to try and offer that as well. But I think what I feel a resistance to is that... I get a lot of this narrative. Like if you go read this this thread that I'm on right now where I talked about my resistance to ETFs as this wonder wonder drug, a lot of what people say is this idea that like people are stupid and they need ETFs because they don't know what else to do. And I just like, I hate that. Like I, I think that there is something like deeply broken about the way that we view people. Um, and 
we we forget like who we were when when we got introduced to bitcoin or like that like like i'm some magical person that can understand things that my employees can't like no it's just someone was gracious enough to give me a chance to sit with me to talk to me to to give me something i like that i frankly probably didn't deserve or didn't have to have and that's what privilege is is it's like being given opportunities independent warrant or 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 right right like and I just don't believe that my life is this sequential stories of I earned everything that was given to me every step of the way. Not in fact, I think many times my 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 stair step up in my level is a reflection of someone's grace and care for me more than it is about my deserving um, entitlement. So I had some resistance as you were talking, and by the time you were done, it was gone. Like my initial resistance was, "Fuck you, Taylor." I. I did this. I was 40K in debt. I got a magic $1,000 credit card and bought a course and busted my face to make 40K. I sold my first business for 40K. Life-changing at that time in my life. Um, But that was the one opportunity. I did that, right? So everybody else needs to get off their ass and do it too. But by the end of your talk, I was like, you know what? That's exactly what I want to give to other people. It changed my fucking life to be able to have a little bit of, of a view into a whole new world. And nothing will bring you more joy than giving it to somebody else. Yeah, if I could do that for somebody, it would be amazing. That's right. It will, it will bring you the greatest fulfillment because you know what it feels like. It would feel so good to offer to somebody else the feeling you had. And the thing about privilege, right? Like ever, this is such a trigger word for people and it, it incites the thing that you just described, but like privilege comes in many forms, right? Like there's able-bodied privilege, the fact that you and I have two arms and two legs that gives us an advantage. There's parental privilege. If you come from a home where your parents didn't abuse you, like that's a, that's a good starting point, right? Like there's all sorts of forms of privilege, right? And so the thing for me is like, I, dude, I have an employee and he's, this kid is freaking amazing. And I'm going to tell a version of his story without using his name, but um, he's an immigrant, uh, this family from, from Mongolia. Um, and he, uh, he, they, they came here he, and he and I are on a zoom call and he's telling me the story. And he's like, they came here and they came here illegally. He tells me, he's like, you know, Taylor, like I, I, I don't think this is right, but we came here on a tourist visa and we just stayed and like, and they were trying to get me to a better life. And ends up like he is experiencing some abuse. His one of his parents struggles with alcoholism, um, and um, and his appreciation for his deeply broken home situation and how it got him to where he is is that despite all the brokenness and all the pain that was inflicted on him by those parents, he has a deeper appreciation for his parents than I do, and. What that what that reminded me of was like when we think about what we are given, um, I think sometimes it's so relative and it's so hard to contextualize what else it could have been. And so I, I just want to be a person that is deeply appreciative and sees gratitude in the spaces that I'm in and offers out of that place more than this idea that like, again, it goes back to this scarce mindset that like I deserve something because of the effort that I did. Like I don't, sometimes I think that like when I'm trying to do that, I'm trying to add something to myself that I don't have. And I don't, I don't know what that is. Like I get to that place too, to be clear. Like I feel that way many times. And every time I do, I take a step back and I'm like, what is it that I want right now that I don't have that I need to be added to me? And every time I can release that, I find a lot more peace. Um, so I, I, I this is again, we're, we've got, we've meandered a lot here in different directions, but dude, I just, I find that it, and a pri- privilege is actually closer to gratitude and an acknowledgement of privilege is closer to gratitude than it is some de- declaration of weakness. And I think if we understood that we would be able to engage that term in ways that weren't so triggering, it would just be to look around and like deeply appreciate what we have. And I think that that's really powerful.
Yeah, uh, from my seat, I'm I'm sitting here. How do I find those hungry people? Because there's people in in your life and for sure in my life that I can single out and say, man, I want to help these people see that light, if you will, right? And I want to help out some family members and some friends and things like that. But I bet there's hundreds of hungry people listening to this or will find this who are like, man, I want to go, you know, help Taylor or, or help Ben, right? And so uh, yeah. I'm my brain's spinning with ideas of like, how can I, you know, how can I find that first person? You want me to tell you? Uh, so. You build a you build a cafeteria, people will show up for food. You build a hospital, sick people will show up. If you build a place at CTC, we build a place where we will alter the, the trajectory of your career. You know who shows up? Hungry people who want to alter the trajectory of their career. You don't go seeking, right? Like you build a thing that people want on the basis of the thing that you're offering, right? So it's it that to me, like you actually can't go convince somebody to to behave any certain way. They have to make that choice for themselves, right? But if you develop a place where they know that if I come to you and I'm hungry, I will benefit and I will grow, like because you offer me meat, like to, to keep with the metaphor, like if you develop a reputation for being a butcher, people will come wanting meat. Like, like, and that I think is the key, is that be a place where hungry people, when they come to you, will be fed and grow, and then they'll keep coming. Can I share one more story though? Because I, I think this is important because um, I want to... Sure. And this is something I, I don't think I've talked about on a podcast yet, but I want to share like, because the idea that I'm a great leader, um, I, I would actually cope with, um, I'm a curious person who's willing to see myself as needing to improve. And that is that is part of the power. And I want to share why I think I've, I've gotten there. So when I was um, 24 years old, I, uh, I showed up, my mom called me, I was driving to work um, and my mom was crying and she said, um, Taylor, I need you to come home. Your dad's gone. Okay. Now I want you to understand that up until this point, um, my life, my family was like the prototypical, perfect Orange County, white evangelical Christian family, like well off, perfect kids, good life, nice house, all, all the things. Um, and so I got that call. My mom's crying. I drove home. Um, and I found my mom upstairs in the house we were living in, in on a couch crying. And she told me that she had um, caught my dad texting another woman and um, that she had told him to leave. And in that moment, my mom unloaded 20 years of secrets um, on me that throughout all of my life, my dad had had all these um, relational affairs and was not the person that I thought that he was. And my mom sort of went into a vegetative state and had an emotional breakdown. I had to carry her to bed for many nights. Uh, as I dove into their life, I found that they were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt um, and completely. And I had to go with her to crying to the bankruptcy attorney and um, have not had a relationship with my dad since. Um, something I'm working on, hope, hoping to pursue more forgiveness there as I continue through that journey. But that was a sixth sense moment. And, you know, in the sixth sense, at the end of it, he discovers that, um, you know, he's dead or that everybody's like that Bruce Willis is dead. Or, and you replay your whole life through a different lens, right? And suddenly you realize that everything you thought was true was not. And so I live in the reality that at any given moment, everything I think is true could not be. And I'm totally comfortable with that. And I'm aware of that. And so one of the things that that makes me is really open to people telling me that I'm really wrong about something. And so I think the diversity and inclusion is another place where someone helped me to see something I didn't see for myself that because I was not afraid of the idea that I could be totally wrong, um, I was open to receiving and hearing. And 
that means I've got to receive those and sort through them and figure out where I land and come to conviction on it. And I live with this idea that my job is to live in integrity with my best available present truth. So whatever I believe to be true right now, my job is to behave in integrity with that, but know full well that it could change again in six months. And so a lot of these things, these experiences come out of this place of like being certain that I'm wrong about a lot of things. And so I say that BK just because I want everybody to, to hear like Taylor is not right. Taylor doesn't have all the answers. In fact, a lot of the things that Taylor are saying could be totally wrong. Um, but I think that space, that mental occupation of that uh, possibility and the consideration then of everything you learn along the way allows you to build systems that are able to change and support and evolve and become sort of uh, adaptable to whatever you need to learn and know for the moment. So that's a little bit of a story and insight into me that I don't think you knew that I think is uh, an important part of, of who I am. Look, I think you are a great leader. I, I admire a lot of what you're doing. I admire your passion towards so many subjects like uh this obviously is a podcast. I hope people can hear, but I can see it, right? And I've talked to you about other things. I know we wanted to get to to dibs and to NFTs. I'm going to call it right here because I think you did a, a fantastic job of like talking about your business. And like, this whole episode was incredible, man. You knocked it out of the park again. Um, maybe we'll try to get this one up to being the number one episode. We'll see what we can do about that. <laughs> but I do want to have you back on. Uh, Dave uh, Charn, who was on a previous episode, I want to talk about NFTs. I want to talk about dibs. It's where I'm at. I know it's that's where you're at. Moon, it's going to the moon. Yeah, if you're into sports cards and you're not on dibs, that's crazy. Uh, Taylor or myself, we can definitely get you on the platform while it's still invite only at this point. Um, but like NFTs is such a cool conversation. Uh, I don't know how much you want to deep dive into another crazy investment we made uh, in in that market. I have so many notes here of like Euler Beats, Monsters of Rap, Crypto Punks, Crypto Kitties. I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to get Evan on here and do a little bit of a uh, call about dibs and then maybe follow up with you and Dave like for the second hour and we'll talk about dibs and then we'll talk about NFTs. Um, so I'll try to book that out. Sorry, folks, if we didn't get to that. Um, man, Taylor, where can people find you? Obviously Twitter is where it's at, but where, where else can people reach out? Pe more people need to hear from you. Yeah, I'm on, I'm, I'm at Taylor holiday on Twitter. It's my favorite spot to, to engage. Um, the other thing I'll tell you is if you DM me, one of my favorite platforms to communicate on is Marco Polo trade asynchronous video messages. And I do it with lots of entrepreneurs all over the world. Just bounce around ideas whenever I get the chance. Um, I love async communication. It's hard to schedule zoom and time, but uh, it's easy to trade messages. So, um, those are the places for me, man. Yeah, I used to like, I can't even remember the name of it. There was like a walkie-talkie app that everybody was using. Uh, and I used to love the same thing that you could just, you know, send a, a real quick message. A Voxer is what it was called. You could yeah. send a, a real quick Voxer and get a Voxer back. Um, uh, my wife uses Marco Polo to send like little kids yeah. videos and stuff. So maybe I need to get on there and uh, just shoot some random stuff to you. Do it. Do it. I appreciate the time, man. Thanks as always for, for drawing out good conversation. And I appreciate it. I hope you were able to get something out of this episode. I know I certainly did. Uh, I look up to Taylor a lot. I'm grateful for my friendship with him. In fact, the last year of my life, uh, I, I don't think I would be into some of the things I'm in if it wasn't for him. He's the one that set up the Wednesday Night Poker Group, uh, which brought in our investments into dibs and brought in a bunch of friendships that I've had on this show that I wouldn't have before. So I'm just super grateful for him as a friend. I'm grateful he's able to come on here and talk about some of the things we're able to talk about. And I, I really hope you were able to glean something from this conversation that you can implement into your business. If you like this show, please share it with somebody. That is the fastest way for me to reach more people is just you sharing it with somebody you think needs to hear this. So if somebody came to mind in the middle of this, please share this episode with them. I would appreciate it very, very much. Uh, again, thanks, Taylor, for coming on. Go follow Taylor Holiday on Twitter at Taylor Holiday. 
if you're not on Twitter, get on there already. But if you are, make sure you're you're, you're following Taylor. He's a good follow. Uh, and like I said in the beginning of the show, I'm going to start sharing more as well. So go follow me, myself at Ben Kanegnor. Both of those Twitter links will be in the show notes. I'm going to start emailing more. I'm going to start sharing more stories, more lessons I've learned along the way, more cool things I've been able to do, uh, and and what I'm geeking about currently i'm gonna start sharing that in my uh, email newsletter as well so uh, again in the show notes sign up for my email newsletter follow me on twitter follow taylor on twitter and honestly thank each and every one of you for listening seriously from the bottom of my heart i appreciate every single person that listens to this show a uh, few of you have reached out and, and let me know what this has meant to you and, and i can't thank you enough i appreciate you i love doing this i love interviewing amazing people i'm just really excited to continue moving forward and sharing these stories uh and continuing on my journey and uh, i'm grateful that each and every one of you is along for the ride so thank you for that and i will see all of you next wednesday 